0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats, and I'm your host, Kate Young.
1: When I try to understand why on earth would agriculture be practiced that way, the answer really is colonization. The answer really is this wasn't about managing land for everybody's mutual benefit. This was a process of extraction.
0: This week on the show, we explore the deep roots of regenerative farming with Liz Carlisle, author of Healing Grounds. And we learn about restoring native prairies and bringing buffalo back to the land with Latrice Tatsy of the Blackfeet Nation in northwestern Montana. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. On a show about food and farming, a show called Earth Eats, the subject of climate change and the role of agriculture comes up quite a bit. It's becoming increasingly clear that the dominant forms of agriculture practiced in the U.S., namely monoculture row cropping, relying on chemical fertilizers and pesticides, heavy tilling of the soil year after year, confined animal feeding operations. These systems have released carbon into the atmosphere and are contributing to the warming of the planet. As we turn our attention towards more sustainable growing methods, regenerative agriculture is presented as something new. These methods of rotational grazing, cover cropping, agroforestry, even composting. They come from indigenous practices, or they come from black farming traditions, which can be traced back to farming on the African continent, or from indigenous farmers in Central and South America. And some might say, well, it doesn't really matter where they come from. The point is to put them into practice, and quickly, because we're running out of time. In Liz Carlyle's new book, Healing Grounds Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming, she tells the stories of four women of color working in regenerative agriculture. And she makes the argument that the origins of these practices and the involvement of the people whose knowledge has been ignored, whose land has been stolen, whose labor has been exploited this is the crucial piece. In coming to terms with the climate crisis we all face, one of the people featured in the book is Latrice Tatsi, a bison ecologist on the Blackfeet Nation in northwestern Montana.
2: Oki nistu Hello, my name is Buffalo Stone Woman Omscapi My English name is Latrice Tatsi. I am from the Blackfeet Nation, born and raised. I grew up on my family ranch where I'm currently doing this interview from and you know just being a student and a a learner studying the land and the animals and and using that to further my education through the university systems while pursuing my knowledge through the cultural sciences and the cultural path and that's kind of what I see myself doing throughout my life and working with students to bring them back to the land. So I just see myself as a, a researcher, a mom, and, and just wanting to continue to learn all that I can while sharing the knowledge that I have with, with others. So,
0: I brought Latrice Tatsy and Liz Carlisle, the author of Healing Grounds, together for this conversation.
1: I'm Liz Carlisle, and I was born and raised in Montana. I'm from a settler background. I had the incredible privilege of actually spending some time in the territory of the Blackfeet Nation when I was a young person. And, you know, my interest in agriculture came from my grandmother's stories. She lost our family farm in the Dust Bowl, and I've always been kind of hungry to reconnect with land but in a good way and to try to understand that tragedy that's happened across the prairies of the north american continent and how i could be part of a healing process and so i'm now an assistant professor in the environmental studies program at uc santa barbara i get to work with some really amazing students And I also have the privilege of speaking with with leaders like Latrice, who's part of this conversation today, who are really doing the work in their communities and on the ground to basically turn the story around from agriculture as extraction, agriculture as this oppressive process rooted in colonization to agriculture as healing, agriculture as resistance, agriculture as Indigenous communities and communities of color rising and leading us all into, I think, a future that we can be proud of, that we can be proud of the legacy that we're leaving for our our children and our grandchildren.
0: Liz Carlisle is the author of Healing Grounds, Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming, which is the topic of our discussion today. I wanted to hear from Liz about what led her to writing this book.
1: I've been really concerned about agriculture's role in climate change, specifically since 2008 is when I started kind of pursuing this as the direction of my work and the direction I would take professionally. But it's, it's rooted more deeply than that for me. It is because my family lost our farm in the Dust Bowl and kind of lost our land connection. And I think in a sense, kind of like lost our way. <laughs> I, I've been looking for that sort of how can we be in a healing reciprocal relationship with land ever since. But I, I've been studying this question of how farming can be transformed from a climate problem into a climate solution as a researcher, and I've gotten to talk to a lot of amazing farmers and scientists who are working on this question. And in recent years, there's been a really big debate about how much of a climate solution regenerative agriculture really is. So you have something like the four per mil study, a big international study that's concluding, oh my goodness, like this could offset up to a third of human caused emissions, a global transition to regenerative agriculture. But then you also have people saying no you know this is really kind of just smoke and mirrors it's more of kind of a marketing campaign there's not really very much regenerative agriculture can do to restore carbon to soils and so When I started researching this book, my question was basically, well, is regenerative agriculture a powerful climate solution or is it not? (laughs) And I think what I learned is that, well, it depends on how deeply you approach it. So if we sort of keep business as usual in agriculture, but add some individual practices like no-till or some cover crops here and there, but call it regenerative agriculture, That is kind of the smoke and mirrors. (laughs) But if we take the word regeneration at its heart, and if we really follow the lead of the indigenous communities and the communities of color that have these ancestral traditions of regenerative agriculture and reciprocal relationships with land that go back hundreds of years, thousands of years, back to time immemorial, if we really take that seriously of reshaping our society's relationship to land and really healing colonization that actually does have a lot of power to shift the direction of climate change and at the same time to address racial injustice and colonization which of course we need to do anyway so that for me was the journey of this book is realizing that if we approach regenerative agriculture, not just as a climate solution, but really as part of a larger process of decolonization, we're going to have a whole lot more success. I got to connect specifically with four women, and we get to speak today with Latrice Tatsy from Blackfeet Nation, who's doing super inspiring work on buffalo restoration. And I think as a regenerative grazing expert, speaks both to the importance of buffalo restoration and specifically tribally led buffalo restoration, but then also has this experience of being a cattle producer and understanding what cattle producers and indigenous cattle producers in particular are learning from these deep relationships that they have with native herbivores. And then in the second chapter, I got to speak with Olivia Watkins. She has an agroforestry operation. She's forest farming in North Carolina on a piece of land that's been in her family for over a hundred years. And when she talks about conserving forested land, she's also talking about conserving black owned land, which is an incredibly powerful legacy given all of the obstacles that black farmers have faced over the last, you know, hundred years plus. And then, you know, I live and work in California now, even though I was born and raised in Montana. And in the last couple sections of the book, I got to speak to a couple really inspiring agroecology leaders here in the state of California. Ida Guzman, who recently finished a PhD at UC Berkeley, looking at the connection between above ground biodiversity and the below ground biodiversity in the soil that really helps drive carbon sequestration processes and she herself is from a family that immigrated from mexico from a diversified small farm that's been in her family for a long time and then worked in agriculture in this country in more kind of industrial farming operations and she in her research she knew that there were all of these immigrant farmers in the central valley who kind of weren't being contacted by researchers or even counted in the USDA census of agriculture. And she partnered with these farmers who, mostly immigrants who had these diversified small farms and demonstrated that they were also cultivating this below ground biodiversity that's so important for soil carbon sequestration. And then actually her neighbor, not that far down the road in the Fresno area, who is featured in the fourth chapter is Nikiko Masumoto, who has this extraordinary family background It was her grandparents' generation that were incarcerated during World War II simply for the quote-unquote crime of their Japanese descent. And they lost their farm, they lost everything, and they had to rebuild. But they made this decision to literally like, seed their future in this soil, in this place where they had been told they didn't belong. And she, uh, she's farming organic peaches and nectarines. Her dad converted the place to organic and doing all this really incredible work as an organic farmer, but also as an advocate for immigrant communities and all sorts of communities who've been told they don't belong in agriculture.
0: I'm speaking with Liz Carlisle and Latrice Tatsy about Carlisle's new book, Healing Grounds. We'll be delving into that second chapter focused on Latrice Tatsy and the Buffalo Restoration Project at the Blackfeet Nation in northern Montana. Stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. I'm talking with Liz Carlisle, author of Healing Grounds, and Latrice Tatsy, whose work is featured in the book. Tatsy studies bison ecology. I asked her to explain.
2: Well, for me, we refer to bison as in need. And to study it and talk about studying it, it started culturally with my people and carried on through generations and generations. And even with a lot of the extermination of the buffalo, the the knowledge base stayed with my family, even as we adopted agrarian practices such as ranching. And my father, he is a really big part of my identity in understanding our working with and being a part of, of this ecology because growing up Where we live on in Badger Creek, there's teepee rings, there's buffalo jumps, there's histories of the agencies that were in this area. Where you know when they were switching to agrarian practices, so there's this this rich history where I'm where I live. And so growing up, I was so fortunate, and I didn't know as a young kid, as four and five year old riding on the back of the horse that my dad had me finding rock cairns throughout the hills while checking cows and, you know, and looking at buffalo jumps and looking at teepee rings. Like, I, I knew where those things were, but I didn't understand the importance of them until I got older. And I really, I realized then that, wow, I really like science, you know, this is where I want to go. But I, I realized there wasn't a native identity in science and I was just like well that that can't be because our 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 upbringing our survival was based off the land like how how do we put a voice in science and how do we use our knowledge as a tool to help heal the land and and what we've known from utilizing it from time immemorial like um Liz was, was talking about, you know, for, for indigenous people and people of color, because this knowledge base is deep rooted within us. And so at that point, I I start studying these things. And I was like, okay, well, this is where it really aligns with the cultural teachings that were shared with me from my father that he learned from his grandparents who learned from his grandparents and so on. And knowing that, you know, this information gives you the identity again and who you are and 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 now as as an adult in doing this research I want to have the identity in in the work that I do especially when it comes to agricultural practices because you read so much research and things that they do in in the east don't work for our arid country and I was like you know where where does this information where do we learn more and and it's always been going back to our history and so learning of bison behavior of the stories that our people would tell would share because we're oral sharers we don't necessarily write everything down we share information through through visiting like we are now and mm-hmm. so you'd hear these stories of where you know our people would burn uh, grasses because they would want, you know, the inni, the bison, to return to these areas. And so you learn how they, they would help kind of these natural processes, because they knew this management that they were doing, because the, these animals were, const, were moving to, re, to different resources, that, you know, there had to be a way to manage that in such a way that would benefit them. And so then, you know, the more I start reading this research that was being done on bison behavior by early scientists, and I was like, you know, this information is just reconfirming of what our people already know. So, how do I take what we know and make it to where we could use these teachings to, to work with and foster the ecosystem? And, and renew it. And, you know, looking at bison behavior, you, you look at the, the evolution of the world in animals and based on where an animal is, you know, they, they build and they foster this relationship with the land. And I was like, you know, bison have evolved in the Great Plains area and there's these ecological relationships and, you know, what do we not know about it yet? And what can we learn and so doing this and, and with my research for my graduate program I really had to go back to the land and not look at it in such like eurocentric science western science you know how everything in that the West, that that has to be labeled a certain way and go back to the cultural teachings and I was like you know this this cultural information this is cultural science and so in honoring it as such as the science and really visiting people who were working with the tribal buffalo herds in eurocentric science or western science they take the people out and they want it just to be a study of of your control and then you have your experiment and everything for me i don't see science that way i see in our culture, we are connected to the environment as people, we are a part of nature. And so that's kind of how I really wanted to approach my work. So when I was working with the, the bison managers and and I was like, you know, I really want to, you know, where do these animals go? What do you see? And bringing that human perspective back to the science with the observation, because in, yeah. in science, observation is so important. And so I really, you know, start asking, you know, what do you see these animals doing? And they're like, you know, Latrice, one in the morning, they're, they're here. And then in the afternoon, they moved here. And in the evening, they're way over here. And I was like, wow. And this is the herd that I've done my study on. And so then I could do a randomization of my data and just have a program, pick these sites on a map. Or I was like, I can listen to this information and try to see what these relationships are when I take my samples and kind of really see what these animals are doing. And what I'm finding is soil is tricky and it's really, you don't see stuff right away. And and that's okay because everything takes time. When you rush a process, there's all these things you figure out were missing. And in this way, you know, these animals were historically on this land they were removed and now they're being reintroduced. So it's relearning what these relationships are from the tribal perspective of the management and the goals, because you you could look at say, oh man, all these ecological benefits are awesome, awesome, awesome. But what benefits are also important in that is the reintroduction is bringing the identity back to the land by reintroducing these animals but also bringing the the identity back to the people, because that was lost for such a long time, and you know, seeing that, and this book is all about healing, and listening to Liz and these stories that are being told, it's going back to the land to heal the land, but also to heal a part of yourself, because we are a part of nature, and we are just a part of that as all these animals and and putting ourselves back out there is one of the most important things we can do and understand from a larger ecological perspective that we are a part of this ecosystem. We're not above or below it. We are, you know, in balance with it. And how do we create these balances with all these imbalances that are going on around us? And so for me, that's the really big picture of all of these Sciences and looking at people who've who've lived on these lands, these lands had these relationships and understand what these lands were capable of, but also looking at the histories of them, because that identity to the place is really important. And like Liz said, you know, with her family, that identity, she'll always have the identity to that land, just as many indigenous people who are pushed out of their lands. Those identities are still there. And so uh, I'm lucky that our tribe, we're still in our original territories. But now we're starting to bring back these animals that were once removed, but we're learning about them on these ecological levels and also bringing back our identity. And so for me, that bison ecology, any ecology, encompasses all of that. All of those processes
0: What are some of the key differences between the way that you raise bison and the way that you would raise cattle and and their effect on the land?
2: first, you you really have to understand their behavior and understand their evolution in how they evolved with the land and so for for bison, you really look at You know they were constantly nomadically moving, and then you, you look at cattle and you understand like you know where they come from. They were really riparian animals, and and from areas where they didn't have to move throughout the land so much to, to graze, and that you know that's not really their their nature or their habit, and so you really learn and and get a really, of a knowledge base like a vast knowledge base. Of these animals. And so when in doing that, you're learning about them. And from being a rancher, I'm like, okay, I know in the summer, like these cows will not move out of these riparian areas that we got a fence off. They get so hot that they they just want to eat, drink, and rest. And then looking when studying the bison herds in in the same type of conditions and watching them, they're like, all right, they'll they're constantly moving, drinking, moving and so knowing those things and so when you understand these behaviors it, you you can start to say okay i can introduce these practices to cattle because the way that these bison are grazing is really beneficial to these plant communities it's really beneficial to these water resources it's really beneficial to the soil and you and you look at all of these these different things as a rancher it's like okay now they they come up with these you know these hot terms regenerative grazing and everything and it's and it's like okay well you know bison have been doing this for a long time as far as it comes as for grazing the grazing application of it and so it's like okay now I'm gonna watch what these animals do today and see how I could replicate that for management and that's kind of some of the work that I'm doing with Pikuni Lodge Health Institute, working with ranchers. And so we're just trying to get a really good idea of, you know, what can we learn from these animals to apply to ranchers who aren't comfortable or it's not that they don't want to switch operations because we're not here to say you need to switch operations. Because if you don't honor people's cultures, you know, you're really taking away from them. Like at first it was like, buffalo are important, you know, and they took that cultural piece, that cultural identity from the person. And if you say that to someone who's, this is their life when it comes to cattle or buffalo, you're going to really rub someone the wrong way. And you don't want to do that because you want to be just as respectful to the people and their ideals as you would want to be treated and you would want to treat the land and so looking at with bison reintroduction you also got to look at these ranchers who have these leases on these lands who are possibly going to be losing them to reintroduce bison and you and you can't just say we're going to take that land we're gonna we're just going to put in buffalo that's just the way it's going to be because you're just you're going to have so much animosity that it's it's not going to be very productive so it really comes down to talking with these ranchers what i and that's what i do from a rancher background but also be an advocate for for any and bison because you know those relationships that they have with the land is also really important so it's about really finding this balance and how you can use this this information and and find a way that be like okay ranchers if if they're gonna take some of this how can you move your animals here because you don't wanna just take that away because I feel like that's what creates these fights between cattle ranchers and bison ranchers throughout the whole United States because it's they're they're pinning them against each other and that shouldn't be because with all the research I've been reading they graze differently. You know, this is really interesting. Based on how they graze, I have three buffalo calves right now. Eventually, when my herd builds up, can I graze my buffalo in this pasture, move them on, then graze my cattle and let this pasture rest? And what am I going to see? Because we talk about diversity, right? And we're, we're talking about this diversity of plants on the soil and what that does for the diversity below the soil well, not only for plants, but what about animals? Because before we had this deep-rooted, taken over the land, we're going to plow it, you know, you, you realize you had grizzly bears, you realize you had wolves, elk, and, you know, now these animals are known to be more towards the mountains, but prior to, they were a part of these landscape ecosystems, and so not only for farming and planting, but it's like, okay... What benefits can we see by diversifying our grazing, too? And so that's something that is future work, but that really relates to regenerative in in the ways that I want to move forward with it because both of these animals are important. I've raised um, beef cattle, and I from a bottle-fed one. I had a pet calf growing up, and and then you know now raising my own buffalo calves. They put an identity in you and you kinda put your identity in them and so I feel like if I went one or the other then I wouldn't be honoring who I the full me of who I am in my background because I don't know if you hear a lot of indigenous people say this, but they say a lot of times, you know, you walk in two worlds and a lot of times I do that, but I'm always the one who's trying to like break down that stereotype and be like, bro, you know, we're we're walking in the same world. There, there, we, as people, we create these in these boundaries, and there, there, you can't see them, but we create them. And I feel like with this, with what Liz is doing, and with the work that pe- the individuals are doing in her book, where we're saying, you know, the, these boundaries don't exist because culturally they never existed and how do we share that with you and and to ensure that you know we're managing these lands in a way that they heal and we heal but we get to keep our identities in, within our own practices.
0: I'm speaking with Latrice Tatsy who lives on land in the Blackfeet Nation in Montana and studies bison ecology. She's featured in the new book Healing Grounds, Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming by Liz Carlyle. We'll hear more from Liz and Latrice after a short break. You're tuned to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Let's return to my conversation with Liz Carlisle and Latrice Tatsey. Liz, you make the connection in the book between settler colonialism in the 1800s and early 1900s, barbed wire fencing, and the 1887 General Allotment Act, which is also known as the Dawes Act. And you say that these are crucial to understanding the origins of the climate crisis brought about by U.S. grain agriculture. And I was wondering if you could make that connection for us.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for asking that question. I mean, so I'm coming to this research, you know, thinking these questions about how do agriculture and climate relate to each other and how can we, you know, shift agriculture so that it's less of a climate problem and more of a climate solution. And one thing that's really clear to me is that there used to be a lot more carbon in the soil than there is now and we're lucky that there still is as much as there is. Um, Soils globally are really important carbon sink, and if it weren't for all the carbon stored in the soil, we'd have a heck of a lot more of it in the atmosphere. But historically, there was a lot more carbon stored in soil, And one of the primary reasons that carbon is no longer in the soil is because of a form of agriculture that involves really heavy tillage, plowing, so disrupting those soil ecosystems to begin with, and then not necessarily replacing that vegetation. So if you look across, you know, the North American continent and you look at areas where, you know, farming is being practiced in this kind of settler colonial mode, you often see crops that are planted in monoculture during the growing season, but then the soil is bare in the winter. There aren't a lot of perennial plants You know, some farmers are starting to experiment with cover crops and things like that, but mostly if you drive through the middle of the country in the winter, you see soil just eroding, you know, due to wind, due to rain, due to snow. And part of what's happening in that process is that carbon is continually being released from those soils. And actually, not just carbon, also nitrogen. So we have this state of agriculture right now in much of the North American continent where not only was there a lot of carbon already released, you know, with sort of the the first plowing, but there's continuous carbon being released because there's not roots in the ground all year round. And so when I try to understand, you know, why on earth would agriculture be practiced that way? You know, the answer really is colonization. The answer really is this wasn't about managing land for everybody's mutual benefit. This was a process of extraction in so many senses. So the reason that agriculture was designed in a way that extracts nutrients from soil is it was part of this larger extraction. People were being extracted out of the land that they'd had a relationship for, you know, with forever and ever and ever. The whole idea, you know, the United States was a colony. The whole idea was to extract wealth and resources from this land and, you know, sort of collect them and you know, concentrate them for elites originally in Europe, you know, and later on, all that sort of happened within what became the United States. And a really important way in which all that played out in the western part of the country, where it's a lot more arid, and prairies have this very particular relationship They're they're incredibly uh, powerful and rich ecosystems that can store a lot of carbon and be very ecologically productive, but they're also fragile in important ways, these, these arid ecosystems in the western part of the United States, and all of the organisms that had lived there prior to European colonization sort of understood this. So Latrice, you know, talks about how bison would go really, really long distances and graze selectively. And that was in balance with the kinds of plants that survived on these semi-arid prairies. And then indigenous peoples who lived with these animals and with these plants had burning practices that amplified these kinds of cycles of regeneration and vegetation. And so there was a life way of mobility that was really important to the reciprocal relationships among people and plants and animals and soils. And so when European colonizers came to the western part of what's now the United States with this goal of creating wealth through private property and pushing indigenous peoples off their lands, and when they created fences and when they created reservations, they fenced all of these lives that had been in continual motion, in relationship through motion. They fenced them into place. They isolated them from each other. And all of these beings that had been in relationship with each other, that relied on their relationships with each other for their thriving and their survival, people, animals, plants, soils, they were fenced off by fences, by reservations, by the Dawes Act, by these policies, from their relationships with each other so that all of this land could be stolen, carved up into private property, and wealth could be derived from it in an extractive way. And so that to me, there's the processes of colonization and the processes through which we have a climate problem on the North American prairie are so closely intertwined. And that's why if you're talking about Healing these lands, if you're talking about trying to restore these lands, it's also you really have to ask these questions about the Dawes Act and boarding schools and reservations because The way in which people and land and animals were treated, it was often the same officials in the same agencies. And as as Latrice has said, you know, the people who are part of these ecological relationships are absolutely at the center. And if you're not restoring sovereignty to those peoples, you're not restoring anything about these ecosystems. I mean, fences just do not make sense for, you know, the western part of the North American continent or really any other semi-arid area around the world. And the purpose of those fences wasn't about ecological productivity, although that sort of cover story was presented sometimes about forage and cows and things like that. But the real reason that fences were built is because that is what facilitated you know, wealth through private property and and theft of land through this private property concept, which was not consistent with the way indigenous peoples were relating to land or sharing land or governing land. So there's been this story for a long time that fencing had something to do with like ecological management of cattle (laughs) and that got propagated through early range science for many many decades but I think even what a lot of scientists who work with cattle are now starting to realize is that the history of their own discipline was just completely colored by the fact that it was invented to serve this colonial purpose. And so if you really do care about animals and land and people who live with animals and land, you have to start questioning, like, well, why were these fences put in place? And how really would we live on land with animals if the goal was the mutual flourishing of everybody?
0: I'm curious, you both brought this up, and I I would just like to hear a little more detail about it. the the practice of burning and how fires and grazing interact when it comes to bison.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been a really interesting time for me to be alive with respect to fire ecology, because I was born in 1984, and we were still in this kind of fire suppression period that that's the way a lot of, you know, US government agencies were thinking about how to manage fire and Smokey Bear and all that stuff. And then the fire in Yellowstone Park happened when I was a little girl. And the predictions about what would happen, I mean, people in Missoula, Montana, where I was born and raised, were very concerned, you know, that Yellowstone would never come back, you know, that it's like, oh, this is like driving this huge tourist economy in our state, and it's never going to look the same. And people were just like wringing their hands. And people were very surprised to see what Yellowstone looked like two or three years after that fire. They were like, oh my god, like plants are growing here. <laughs> and since that time, you know, they're starting to be more tribally led burning and asking indigenous people, you know, how did you manage this land with fire previously, and this concept of good fire, and more and more intentional burnings happening on not just tribally owned lands, but also now some of these parks that are understanding, you know, this is indigenous territory, and we need to at least pursue co-management. So I've had the chance over my lifetime to kind of see this shift and to actually see land coming back after a good fire that's been set in an intentional way. So I I don't study fire ecology, but it was fascinating for me to hear from Latrice and from some of her colleagues about why fire was a really important tool historically. Historically and, and why it's important that we bring it back just because it amplifies these cycles of regeneration and this patchiness of the prairie landscape that was something that was so hard, I think, for the kind of Euro-American colonizer mindset to understand where for so long the idea was, well, a good, healthy ranch has this very homogenous vegetation, this very homogenous forage, and to understand that, oh, no, a healthy prairie that's ecologically healthy and storing carbon It doesn't just look like one homogenous stretch of grass. It's not a golf course, you know, (laughs) like that actual diversity uh, that fire amplifies of different kinds of vegetation and different stages of growth is exactly what so many of the species need for their habitat and what is sort of driving all this life that's then cycling carbon and just all of these ecological relationships.
2: And, and I would just like to touch um, more on what Liz was saying, too, especially in, in the foothills of the mountains where we live, with all the fire suppression that we've had, we really have this, I'm, I hope I'm using the right term, is it regression, where all of these pines are coming in and, and they're the same age and they're pushing out the grasses. What happens is those pine needles will drop and those pine needles are a little more acidic, So it's creating the soils to be a little more acidic because grasses need kind of more of a neutral pH. And so a lot of that burning stopped until these foothills, you get these intense fires because there's so much downfall and so much older brush that when these places catch, they burn so hot that it neutralizes the soil to where nothing can grow for long periods of time because all the nutrients are so wiped out. And so it's kind of a to and fro of, you know, looking at when you do reintroduce it to these areas, how is that gonna be based on the history that of burning and the stopping of burning what Liz was getting about at in those factors. So where do we bring that balance back? Because right now, like again, what we see when these fires take off, they burn so hot.
0: That's really interesting because, you know, someone like me, I just think fire's fire, you know? I don't think of a hotter fire or <laughs> cooler fire. So, but that totally makes sense that if you're burning a lot of pine and fallen branches of pine, that it's going to be hotter and maybe do more damage to the soil organisms than a more surface fire of grasses. So it, it does make sense. And it's, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. I would love to hear just some closing thoughts from from both of you about, I mean we've already talked a lot about what's at stake with this this kind of work and why uh, thinking about these regenerative practices is so important. What do you think we could be doing in terms of where should we be pushing policymakers At this point in time, what are some of the opportunities that are before us now? I was wondering, Liz, if you could talk to that, if that's something you've been looking at.
1: Yeah, I think policy is a really important part of this. And I think one of the biggest lessons for me in this book is that there is no substitute for restoring Indigenous leadership and leadership from communities of color in terms of these regenerative agriculture practices that are actually rooted in these much, much deeper ancestral relationships to land. So if you're just talking about, you know, cover cropping and no-till, that's just the surface level. There's so much beneath that. And there's just no substitute for addressing the fact that 98% of agriculture land in the US is white-owned. And the reasons for that have to do with, you know, stealing all this indigenous land and then You know, adding to that process with additional layers of land theft from black people, from immigrants, you know, from people who have worked on land for years and years and years but never had any opportunity to become farmers themselves. So I think it's really important to actually pursue land justice policy. I've been really excited by a bill that Cory Booker and a number of other senators put forth that would actually grant land grants to black farmers. I've been excited by the Land Back movement. I'm really excited to see Deb Haaland in her position. I'm excited to hear much more conversation about returning national parks to their indigenous land stewards. So I think land justice has to be at the center of how we think about regenerative agriculture. And then I also think, you know, we need to shift the existing public subsidies that we put into agriculture. I think it's appropriate that we spend a lot of public money on the farming sector because it has a lot of potential public benefits. There's a lot of public goods at stake, both in terms of the land stewardship and in terms of healthy food. But the way that we direct that money currently doesn't sort of efficiently allocate it to serve its public benefits. It's kind of just mostly propping up these monoculture commodity systems. And so we need to redirect those subsidies to support people who are growing healthy food for their communities. And I think Buffalo Restoration is just a perfect example of you know a cultural food that's healthy that, I mean, it's healthy on so many levels beyond sort of a, you know like a reductive nutrition, nutrients approach, although you can certainly analyze it in that way too and talk about omega-3s. So we should be using our farm subsidies in a really targeted way to support producers who are doing things that give back to the land and who are growing healthy food for their communities. And then, most importantly, we really need to give land back to indigenous communities, and we need to ensure land access for communities of color.
0: Liz just mentioned Deb Haaland. And if that name's not familiar, she was talking about the current Secretary of the Interior who made history when she became the first Native American to serve as a cabinet secretary. She's a member of the Pueblo of Laguna and a 35th generation New Mexican. I asked Latrice for her closing
2: thoughts. What Liz was saying is bringing more diversity into these areas. It's important just because they've been excluded for so long that when these ideas come back, it's like, oh, these new ideas, these new things. And it's like, no, not necessarily. These these ideas in this knowledge is deep-rooted in these people. And so including them in these conversations is important. Our people, we have a medicine wheel. And in in, in that medicine wheel, there's four colors. And those four colors represent everybody who lives on Mother Earth. And so we were all about inclusion, including everyone. And so I think we just need that to happen back for for people of color because we're sitting here we could brainstorm so many great ideas but we bring in so many more people of different backgrounds wow with those collaborations we could change so many things but that won't happen until we bring everybody in and in in a way that they're when they're sharing their ideas and their information, respecting those ideas and seeing them as crucial information and not just something that someone of color is just saying and that could be not utilized because that has happened so much to people, um, even including my dad. And you couldn't even imagine what it would have been like historically for, for his parents and grandparents. But now me having a voice and creating and that starting from my grandparents to my dad to me and to my children we're able to shatter those glass doors and 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 put ourselves in these positions where people of color indigenous black everyone should have always been
0: well thank you both so much for taking this time with me and i really appreciate you bringing this book together, Liz, it's it's really great. So,
2: thank you, thank you. This is this is my first podcast ever, so looking forward to re-listening to the conversations because our people shared information through story and through talking, and and for me. I'm like, you know, this is this is kind of what we're doing. And we're sharing that knowledge base in a way that was culturally practiced by my people. So thank you. It's just
1: been an absolutely wonderful way to spend this last hour in conversation with you two. And I just really, really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> thank
2: you.
0: <laughs> that was Latrice Tatsy, member of the Blackfeet Nation in Northwestern Montana. She studies buffalo ecology and is finishing up a graduate degree in environmental science at Montana State University. We also spoke with Liz Carlisle, assistant professor in the environmental studies program at UC Santa Barbara and author of the book Healing Grounds, Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming, just released in March of 2022 with Island Press. Find more on our website, eartheats.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
2: The Earthies team includes Ayoban Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Josephine McRobbie, Daniela Richardson, Peyton Whaley, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed.
0: Special thanks this week to Liz Carlisle and Latrice Tatsy.
2: Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby additional music on the show comes to us from the artist at universal production music earth eats is produced and edited by kate young and our executive producer is john bailey